0: I come from a family of huggers. Um, I, don't know if you, I don't know if your family was like this, um, but we showed, uh, we were very, very physically affectionate to each other. Um, always give a hug, always give a kiss on your way out the door whenever you get home. Um, we were just a very, very affectionate family. In fact, I remember going to my grandparents' house. If we were ever the last of the, of the cousins to show up, um, mom would always direct us to the living room. And we had to work our way around. We had to kind of do our lap and shake hands with all of our uncles and give hugs with all of our aunts. And mama definitely got a kiss and pops definitely got a big, firm, strong handshake. And we'd work our way around the room and then we could go sit down or go play or whatever. On our way out, same thing. You work your lap. You got to tell everybody goodbye, shaking hands, giving hugs, kisses, all those things. And then we get in the car and we leave. It was a sign of it was a sign of respect it was a sign that we were going to show love to everyone that we were supposed to in the appropriate way doesn't matter if you like that uncle or not you had to shake his hand right doesn't matter how, if that aunt was kind of on your case that day doesn't matter you got to give her a kiss it was one of those things we just it was in my dna it was like it was it was just it was i was conditioned into this for the longest time when i was a kid now, when I got into high school and get involved with retreats and things, I remember the first time that I was in a, on a retreat, I think I was in 10th grade, and we were, we were saying goodbye or saying hello or something, and I gave somebody a hug, and they did not reciprocate it. it. There's not much that's more awkward than that. It's like, hey, how's it? Okay. I didn't understand this concept of the bubble, um, and you're in my space, so back off. And like, I, I remember just kind of walking away being like, that was really awkward. I'm going to go over here, and we're just not going to be friends ever, because that was really cold and creepy, and I don't know, what's your problem, right? But I remember, it's interesting because there are these kind of levels of intimacy that we allow ourselves to go through with people. At the end of Mass, I know, like, I will be waiting at the doors open, right? Uh, I will be waiting to shake hands or do the fist bump or whatever we're supposed to do right now or the little chicken wing elbow dabs or whatever. Like, I, we, we basically shake everybody's hand, right? And it's been kind of awkward this last year and a half because we're like, I don't know what you do with COVID and I do this, but, but we're supposed to kind of shake, but not. And then we don't know. And there's this awkward moment. and It's just like hi, and we walk away, right? But we have a tendency, we'll shake everybody's hand. And then we'll probably, if, if we're honest with ourselves, we probably hug a substantially l- less amount of people. And then if, we, if we're honest with ourselves even more, we probably give like a little peck on the cheek to even less people. But intimacy basically works its way from everybody all the way down to the one. And that's what we show the fullness of intimacy with. In our life, though, I, I think as we see this in relationships, that we see ourselves going from in, a certain appropriate level of intimacy with everyone down to the one, it can be the same thing in our relationship with God. And as we, as we break this open today, I think in particular we can look at our second reading and our gospel the two really, really beautiful sources of how God reveals his intimacy to all of us in a particular and a profound way. Let's look at our second reading in our gospel. Our second reading first. Now, this reading typically, it might, uh, it comes with some little like, it usually it has kind of some, uh, some tension in the pews when we hear this the very beginning wives should be subordinate to their husbands and at that point typically if if men are listening and they're sitting next to their wife we'll usually see something like this happen a little nudge right in the ribs right no like we we see it like yeah see you gotta listen to me all right the problem is guys if you did that I expect to see you in confession after Mass because there's a good chance that if you were sitting there nudging your wife when you heard wives should be subordinate to their husbands that you missed your homework. Let's keep reading. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church. Husbands, Love your wives, even as Christ loved the church. Ladies, this is your moment to be able to nudge him back, by the way. Because how did Christ love the church? What did Christ do to reveal and to show his love for the universal church, for us? He died for it. What did Christ do to reveal his love to the church? What did Christ do to keep her without spot or blemish? What did Christ do to give her the promise of eternal life? What did Christ do to reveal his love to the church? He died for her. He suffered for her. He shed blood for her. Fellas, that's your homework. I think the intimacy that we reveal, all of these these handshakes and hugs and, and on and on and on, so much of this, the feeling behind it is nice and beautiful and wonderful and great. But what really tells us, what really should be the measure of how much we love another person is how much we are willing to suffer for them. How much are we willing to sacrifice for them? But 15 years ago, um, my grandfather—I remember—he was in—he uh, was in ICU. Um, my mom and my and my grandmother were in the room, and it was getting to the point where it was uh, visiting hours were over, right? So the nurse comes in, very very polite, but she comes in and she says, "You know, visiting hours are over. We're going to have to ask y'all to leave." And my grandmother looked at my, looked at the nurse and said, "Ma'am, is there any possible way that I could stay with my husband?" Like she was like, I'll I'll sleep on a on a on a folding chair. I don't care. Is there any possible way that I be will- that I could be allowed to stay with my husband tonight? The nurse said, "Look, ma'am, I'm sorry, but you can't." So as my mom was collecting things, my grandma went over to the bed and gave my grandpa a kiss, and she left. And when she she was on her way out, as she's on her way out, the nurse looked at my grandpa who was laying down in an ICU bed, and he said, she, she asked him, she said, how long have y'all been married? And at that point, like, he knew it to the date. Like, it was like 62 years this week, weir- this month or whatever, whatever it was. And she said, wow, you must really love her. And the, 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 my grandpa looked and said, yes, absolutely. And the nurse says, that must have been very hard. My grandpa looked and he said, it's the easiest thing I've ever done. The nurse was looking kind of perplexed, like she was kind of confused. And My grandpa said, he said, the thing is, is that people think that love is a matter of the heart, but it's not a matter of the heart, it's a matter of the will. People don't fall in and out of love, they don't, the feeling of love kind of goes and comes, but the will runs out the will to love the other person runs out. Like I said, the measuring stick of how much we love somebody should not be the feelings that we have towards this person, but rather, how much am I willing to look like Jesus, to love them like Jesus loved the church? How much am I willing to suffer and to sacrifice for the sake of this other person? To embrace the crosses that marriage has... And to crucify my will for the sake of them. Now, Oh, that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful image. That's a wonderful image of marriage, and it is. But the wonderful thing about this is that when Jesus, when when St. Paul is writing these words to the Ephesians, he's not just writing a marriage column like in the Bible. Like, Ephesians 5 is not supposed to be just like, oh, and this is the section where St. Paul talks about marriage and gives marriage advice. No. He talks about a great mystery, but he's talking about a great mystery of God and his church. You see, marriage is meant to be a sacrament, a sign, pointing to a greater and bigger reality. Marriage is meant to be a sign pointing to a more powerful, more beautiful, more perfect reality that today you and I are here to experience. And that is the love that God has for his church, us. The same love that God has for his church is meant to be imaged in marriage. So every married couple, your job, your role is to look like and point the rest of us to the reality that God loves his church. And today when we come to this mass, we come to taste of the fruits of that love. We sang in the response, taste and see the goodness of the Lord. It's here, it's present, and it's offered to us. Our gospel today. We hear the very beginning of the gospel that Jesus must have said something that kind of ruffled some feathers. There must have been something that he said that just threw people off, that they have an issue with. Because the first thing we say is, this saying is hard. Who can accept it? Immediately before this, in the Bible, Jesus had just finished saying that to to have eternal life, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. As in the last few weeks, we've been walking through the the bread of life discourse, John John chapter 6. And Jesus has just said, to have eternal life, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And people question it. Who can accept this? This is a hard teaching. This is something that's beyond my understanding. How is it possible for me to eat the flesh of this man and to drink his blood? So what did they do? As a result of this, many of his disciples returned to their former way of life, and no longer accompanied him. Now at this, at, when Jesus is giving this speech, when he's giving this bread of life discourse, when he's, when he's going through John 6, there are three distinct groups of people that are there. There's the first group is just the crowd in general. People that might have heard, oh this guy Jesus is coming and he's passing through town and we want to go see the spectacle. He might do something, he might say something that might be interesting. Let's go check him out. The second, one, the second group of people are his disciples. Now, this is not the apostles. That's another group. These are just people that have been following him, that have been turning away and letting go of their livelihoods behind them, and they've been kind of gone and walking with him for some time now, coming to understand who he is. They might have seen a miracle or two, and they're starting to get convinced that this is the Son of God. They're starting to understand it. They're starting to realize it. And then the third group is the apostles. Those are the twelve. Peter, James, John, the whole crew of them. Those are the ones that Jesus is teaching. Those are the ones that he has a close relationship with. Those are kind of his inner circle that he's been walking with and teaching and and is going to continue to form them throughout the rest of the Gospels. And we hear, as a result of this, Many of their disciples, if his disciples return to their former way of life. That people might have been saying, like, wow, he, does, he says a lot of cool stuff. Like, I was on board when you said the thing about, like, giving food to the poor. I was on board whenever you, like, healed the blind man. I was on board when you did all these things, but now you're telling me to eat your flesh and drink your blood? I'm out. That's too much. I can't go that far. I can get on board with, like, doing the nice things for people. I can get on board with, like, making the Pharisees look stupid. But instead, you know what? I, I, can't, I can't get this far. You're way too far. So as they're all leaving, notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't look at them and say, no, 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 no. I was, I was talking symbolically. I meant it it kind of like metaphorically to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Come back. He's watching 90% of his audience walk out the door. He probably, if he meant it metaphorically, would have probably said that and brought them back. So I got a feeling that he's talking about really eating his flesh and drinking his blood. What does he do? He looks at his 12. He looks at Peter and he says, What about you? Peter's response. Master, to whom shall we go? Like, we've come to believe that you are who you say you are. We've come to believe that you're going to do what you say you're going to do. We have come to believe in you as the Son of God. So where else will we go? How does that translate today for us? Do we believe that the mass that we celebrate, that the bread and wine that we receive becomes Jesus, body, blood, soul, and divinity, that he is completely and totally present here and giving himself to you, to me? Where else will we go? Because if we don't believe that, the church down the street got better music. The church down the street, they, hey, their preacher doesn't preach as long as you, Father. The church down the street, they, they got a better sense of community and better people that like, just really seem to care about each other. The church down the street seemed to help the poor better. The church down the street have, like, have stage lighting and, and things. The church doesn't, down the street does not have A God who's willing to suffer and to meet us in person. You see, when we come to Mass, we come to meet a God who is willing to suffer. We come to meet a God who's willing to give his whole self, not just a, a handshake, not just a hug, but a God who is willing to give his whole self completely and totally to us in the sacrament. That we are able to receive his love and reciprocate it back. That what lives in the that, that Jesus who lives in the in the tabernacle, who's present in the Eucharist, radiates this nuclear love of God to us today. And we are lucky enough to receive it. Because love's not a matter of a feeling. But love's a matter of the will. And God wills it today that He wants to step down to meet us. There's a, uh, a Catholic speaker, uh, Christopher West, and in one of his books, he talked about his his mother-in-law and his father-in-law. It's a really beautiful story. Um, he said that on the day they, his mother-in-law and father-in-law, this man and woman, they were they they were married on a Saturday. And they had both grown up going to church. They both grew up um, in Mass every weekend and all these things. So they were, they were married on a Saturday. So being the good Catholics that they were, that after their wedding night, the next morning they woke up and they went to Mass. Because they were like, we're going to start our family off on the right foot. So together they went to Mass, this newly married couple. And they go through the Mass, they are doing everything, they're standing up and sitting down, and they listen to a homily, and they, they're kneeling down for the Eucharistic prayer, and they're going through all the things, and it comes time for communion. And when they come to receive communion, she comes up first and heads back to the pew, and he comes up next and heads back to the pew. And while they were kneeling down after communion, praying, the woman said that she could hear crying, like she could hear sniffling and and recognize that her husband, her new husband, Was crying in the pew. I gotta imagine, like, what's going through her head is like, did you, are you regretting some major life decision that might have happened in the last 12 hours? You know? But what was happening is, is that he was sitting there, and as he was praying, he started to cry a little bit more and a little bit more until he had to excuse himself from the church. And after Mass, she goes up to her new husband, and she's like, What's wrong? Are you okay? And his response to her was simple He said, I finally get it. she said what you mean what do you get and he said I I finally get it he said I love you and I I, like our marriage like the words that we said the way in which we went through our marriage our wedding vows we just lived like the beauty of this exchange of persons that we just experienced and the way that I gave myself completely to you gave yourself completely the way that we are living and the way that we have entered into marriage is absolutely beautiful and I am madly and beautifully and wonderfully in love with you But for the first time, I get it, because the priest said, this is my body given up for you. And if the love that I experience with you here on earth in this marriage is only a fraction of the love that God has for me, how overwhelming is that love? How all-encompassing, how, how, how big is that love that he's willing to suffer and to lay down his life for me? Today, as we come into this, as we come into this mass, we come to be a part, we, we come to, be, uh, to receive the love of God who is madly and totally in love with you. A God who simply just wants to be with you, wants to give himself to you. And all he asks is that we receive it. Where else would we go? Where else can we go to receive the gift that God has for us in the Eucharist? Nowhere but here. Today, we don't come to seek a feeling. We don't come just seeking the, the externals of intimacy. But instead, today, as we come to this Mass, we come to receive love itself. We come to receive the Lord himself who's willing to sacrifice and die for us today as we come to communion, we come with a renewed sense of the love that is being offered. That we may receive it into our life and reciprocate it back to a God who loves us so much.